You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. We'd like to thank Movement Watches for their continued support of SpyCast. Join the movement today. So we're joined today by Clint Emerson, who is a retired U.S. Navy SEAL, spending 20 years conducting special operations all over the world while attached to SEAL Team 3, the NASA Security Agency, and the elite SEAL Team 6. A graduate of the American Military University in Virginia with a BA in Security Management, he is a counterterrorism and surveillance expert and has received numerous awards for bravery and leadership, including a Bronze Star. And since he wasn't a colonel, this actually matters a little bit. He's a founder of Escape the Wolf, a company focused on workplace violence prevention and response, threat identification, and crisis management. He continues to catalog self-defense skills while developing unique, durable tools and products for personal and home security. Clint is the author of the New York Times best-selling book, 100 Deadly Skills, The Sealed Operative's Guide to Eluding Pursuers, Evading Capture, and Surviving Any Dangerous Situation, and now its sequel, 100 Deadly Skills Survival Edition, The Seal's Operating Guide to Surviving the Wild and Being Prepared for Any Disaster, which if you check out Amazon, is the number one or number two in books in several categories, including intelligence and espionage, safety and first aid, and survival and emergency preparedness. Welcome, Clint. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us again here on SpyCast. Hey, Vince. Thanks for having me again. It's awesome. I appreciate the intro. So I want to talk a little bit more about your bio. We've, we've had you here before, so if you're just joining this podcast now, you can go back a couple months and see the first podcast we did with Clint. But we didn't talk about a couple things that I want to hit upon here today. And one of this is that you spent a portion of your time in the special operations community with a group called the Special Missions Unit, the SMU. Can you talk a little bit about this? Because I think this will be interesting to our listeners. Yeah, Special Mission Units really... Um concentrate and work solely, you know, for Joint Chiefs of Staff and, you know, the bigger government, if you would say, the executive branch. So, and they're tasked with, uh, you know, all the same missions and operations of, uh, you know, the highest level as other commands you've heard about. Um, It's just another term for, you know, those units that are out there that, that are at the tier one level. And, uh, you know, if you look back in history, 
you know, like the Jedbird teams of World War II and the OSS. Um, it, it anchors to kind of that heritage um, where you have smaller teams operating uh, jointly around the globe in order to, uh, you know, get the mission accomplished. So you also trained as a combat medic. Uh, can I ask you, what was your most extreme medical situation while you were a SEAL? Wow. Um, yeah, the combat medicine route was, I got to say, you know, with the amount of training that I had, um, that was definitely some of the best training that's out there. And uh, just as a background, you you spend a year, sometimes two, um, basically getting all the knowledge of a doctor crammed into your head, especially on the kind of the trauma side of the house. But you even get to learn laboratory, you know, uh, looking at blood, you know, counting asonophils, basophils, knowing, you know, if you've got more or less of one or the other, that that probably equals a certain disease process. Um, I mean, the training is so extensive. It's, it's out of this world. And, uh, and then for SEALs, not only do we go through, you know, an independent duty corpsman school, which basically allows you to, um, do everything that a doctor, it's basically the scope of practice of a doctor, but then you go to dive medicine school, um, you get some sports medicine because we're always dealing with, uh, injuries and training and so on and so forth. So you come out of it very well rounded, but concentration and obviously trauma and combat, combat, you know, care, if you will. Um, but probably one of the, I mean, most memorable was, uh, in Iraq, Two Marines had been shot, one in the leg, one in the chest, and uh, had to handle that situation along with, uh, it was actually me and Glenn Doherty. Glenn Doherty was uh, in Benghazi with Ty Woods, you know, got killed there. But he and I, I was the primary, he was the secondary medic, and we uh, worked both those guys together. Um, they'd, they'd just been ambushed, and we just happened to be in the area um, and ended up... Uh, plugging holes and pushing them out. But I mean, there was, there was a lot of instances like that over the years. Um, and with time, they all kind of blend together in my mind at least. <laughs> and, uh, which is probably a, a good thing. But, um, that one I think was memorable because it was, uh, it was a little group of Fedeen guys, um, that, you know, had the typical long black trench coat on. They had their AK 47s, and then they had plastic toy pistols in their holsters on their waist, which we were like, what the? <laughs> but it, it goes to show um, their laziness. What we what we ended up figuring out later was that, you know, we ended up taking, basically, we didn't, we didn't take care of the two Marines until after the gunfight was over. So once we had killed these guys and searched them, um, it was interesting, these, these plastic pistols. But what it was when we started talking to other people later is that they were just lazy. They didn't want to carry because they were an arm of intimidation. Um, they didn't want to always have to carry their big heavy AK 47. So if they wanted to still be intimidating, they had their plastic light pistols on their waist at all times, you know, so it was just <laughs> typical, right? Well, yeah, at least they weren't throwing a, a pink pistol water gun out yet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But we were, we were laughing at it, you know, but, but yeah, I mean, saving those guys was definitely a uh, memorable moment because it, it, it happened literally so close to 
eliminating the threat, then dealing with you know injuries, transportation, all over the cover of darkness, while uh, there was a whole lot of other things going on around us. So, um, yeah, that was, that was a pretty memorable moment. And I, and I think the listeners may not understand how advanced your medical training was. I think the statistic is if you can get a wounded soldier back to a field hospital within an hour, the chances of survival is like over 90% now because of how trained you guys are in the field. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, the golden hour is, um, is a term used in the medical world, even for paramedics, but yeah, it's, we, I mean, it is out of control. I mean, to put it in perspective, I guess the types of stuff that we're doing, you know, is we're doing primary and secondary assessments. We're determining what's going on. We're making sure, you know, the A, B, C, D, E, F is all good to go. Um, we have the ability to do chest tubes in the field, cut downs, crikes. I mean, if there's facial mandibular, mandible type injuries, we can, you know, do all kinds of improvised airways. Um, as far as stopping the bleeding, you know, you know, you still go back to your basics with, you know, pressure on the wound, above the wound. Obviously, if you have to do a tourniquet, then do so. Um, you know, we have all the gear on us at all times to basically keep somebody alive. Not We can get them all the way to the hospital, but our training also allows us to do everything clinical as well. So that if we get to a hospital where maybe it's, you know, depending on the country you're in, you, you're not going to trust those doctors. We, we trust ourselves to perform our own medicine. So we scrub in, we do surgeries, we can do, you know, everything from amputations, radical debridements, and, you know, anything that, you know, you're expected to do in an ER setting, we are given the capability of doing it along with pushing drugs. And, and I think that's one of the, the misunderstandings, perhaps, about some of these special operations soldiers, you know, SEALs, Green Berets, Navy, Marine Force Recon, is that you're not just trigger pullers. I mean, it, you're incredibly highly trained in the whole, you know, using weapons and, and doing that part of the mission. But there's so much more going on here. And I, I use this as a segue to talk about your training in surreptitious entry. Because I, I think that's something the listeners may get a kick out of. Uh, can I lay this out for us? What is it? And, and more importantly, how is that important as a SEAL? Because again, many of our listeners think you're a SEAL, you're just kicking down doors you're not necessarily needing to sneak in anywhere. So can I talk us through that a little bit? Yeah, so surreptitious entry um, is something that's been hit and miss in special operations for quite some time. What I mean by that is it, it really goes with uh, whatever the, the genre of operations going on in the world. It's, it's a, most people think that a SEAL has all the, all the qualities of a Jason Bourne and a Rambo put together. And it's, you know, it's very difficult to pull that off. I mean, we just don't look that good on camera, but, um, it's more the, it's, 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 it's come and gone over the years. It's a very perishable skill. And when you have so many other collateral duties and skills that you're responsible for mastering, um, it, it usually is kind of last on the list, but, there was one day when I was at SEAL Team 3, a long time ago, and, you know, I had brought it up to our operations officer and said, hey, you know, I think we need to learn locks. I think we need to be pretty capable at it. This is back, you know, in the 90s. And um, he kind of laughed at me. 
because once again, if you're not doing, if you're not, if you're not requiring that kind of stuff at the time, then it, it doesn't even make sense. You know, what, what, this is pre 9-11, right? We're doing shipboardings, we're, we're enforcing embargoes on Iraq, we're doing, you know, still operating, but just not the same type of stuff that you do in a post 9-11 world. So picking locks and all that kind of stuff just it seemed a little far-fetched at the time. But the the reality is, is for your, your, for like, for example, sniper teams, those are the guys that need to get into places and kind of perch themselves with the greatest, you know, uh, advantage. Um, and that's the kind of guy that in a conventional kind of, um, force would need those skills is, Hey, I just need to be able to get in, get to, you know, whether it's the top of a building, um, into a room that has a window that I need to use, uh, you name it. Um, and that's really probably was the biggest argument for surreptitious entry in special operations was for more of a sniper type mission. Um, but, you know, then you got post 9-11 comes along and operations started extending where, you know, you want to be as silent for as long as possible against any target. Um, and I think what people think with locks, you're not really, you know, picking a lock is actually your last resort. You know, if there is a way to bypass the lock altogether, then you do so. And if you can bypass it quietly, then that's probably your first choice, you know. Um, ideally, you just have a key to the target. <laughs> so and if you can make a key, great. It's not the kind of thing that you would do on, you know, typically on the same night as any kind of operation. But so... Over time, it's become more and more important, and I had the opportunity um, while I was up at the NSA to really um, hone in on these skills. Um, my job up there allowed me to teach different things, um, along with some random deployments, but mostly concentrating on these uh, more nefarious skills, if you will, um, for all kinds of people, you know, it was you, anybody who required the skill in the United States government would, you know, we would uh, give them the training in it. But um, now it's become, I wouldn't say it's still not a standard skill, but it's, uh, it's definitely like, you know, if you're a breacher, then, and your job is to blow doors off their hinges, um, then it's also, okay, the breacher will also learn how to be familiar with locks, how to manipulate them, how to bypass them. Um, and how to make keys to them, you know, without not asking the owner, you know, for his key and going and making a copy. Right. Yeah. I mean, we, we always used to joke, uh, I'm an army guy. If you want to blow something up, you send in the seals, but there is a lot of nuance here. Also, if you, if you're making a ton of noise, breaking into something and your target is several floors up or behind several doors, then you're really asking for it because your target's going to be sitting there waiting for you because of all the noise you've made trying to get in. Exactly. I mean, it it has its place um, in a lot of different operations, but it's 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 a skill that very few guys have the patience to learn. <laughs> That's probably the best way to put it. Um, so you know, I I definitely embraced it and uh, you know became very proficient at it. Um, and but that takes a lot of training. I mean. We, uh, I'd go train with some of the best lock guys in, in the world. Um, and, uh, and then when you do that, you always still, you still feel like a novice every day. <laughs> so. <laughs> so let's take a look at the book. Again, the title is 100 Deadly Skills Survival Edition, The SEAL Operative Guide to Serving, sorry, to Surviving in the Wild and Being Prepared for Any Disaster. So this, 
like the other book, it's not really a handbook for day-to-day living. We're really looking at extreme circumstances here. And really, do you do you suggest this book as what to do in many cases of a last resort? I mean, is getting the hell out of Dodge really the first option? And then this is what you turn to if that's not a possibility? Yeah, I, I built the book so that it, one, you know, we have a saying in the community, you know, what makes SEALs advanced is we master the basics. And I feel like the basics have been lost with a lot of people these days. We're so... Uh, so, um, you know, technology uh, dependent that, uh, that we don't, uh, we feel like we can just Google it anytime. You know, Google the answer, I'll Google the answer, you know? So, um, now with this book, it's all about one, giving you your basic survival skills again, you know, getting back into that. Um, and then at the same time, giving you the urban natural disaster, man-made disaster, um, skills as well. And it's really a playbook for, you know, today's headlines. You know, if you look at it, it's like, okay, how to detect an inspired terror guy, or, you know, how do I avoid a ransomware attack or a virtual kidnapping? These are all of the, these are all the things that are in the news, but nobody is giving you the playbook on how to deal with it. Right. I mean, it sounds a little bit like the crotchety old man complaining about kids today, but people really aren't, really prepared to deal with emergencies the way that they used to. I mean, our ancestors had a significant advantage over dealing with the day-to-day stuff. Yeah, exactly. It's, um, like I said, you know, our basic kind of survival instincts and basic skill sets have kind of gone out the window and, uh, and we've been, you know, victims or slaves to technology to the point where, you know, it is our GPS. It tells us where to go and how to get there. But do you have a map in your car? When I was a kid, my parents had maps in their cars. (laughs) It is the backup, you know, was there always a compass? No, but you know, does it hurt? No, but these are the things that there's most of society these days don't even know how to orientate a map at this point and orientating a map as you know is the first thing you kind of need to know how to do in order to figure out where you're at and where you're going um but technology on the other hand you may not have a signal you may not have batteries you may have a samsung and it light on fire i mean so these are all issues that you could potentially face where you've got to kind of go back to the basics and that's that's why i put all the different survival skills for different environments not so much because i think you're going to you know, not so much for the camping trip gone bad, but more so just the skills themselves for specific environments that you may end up stranded in. Um, and if you look at th- times like Katrina, you know, the place was flooded. You're surrounded by water, but none of it you could drink. And so it's it, you don't have to be lost in the middle of nowhere. Um to need these skills. You can be in the most urban of environments and all of a sudden, you know, the good day go bad and you're going to need some skills. You're not going to be able to Google it when the lights go out or if, you know, if, if the continuing cyber attacks occur, you know, this should be, it, it should be concerning to people, you know, um, our cyber world, uh, controls transportation and water, you name it. And, uh, having some basic skills is a good idea. Yeah. And I think one of the great messages of this book is that preparation is key to everything. I, 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 this is not a book you put in your back pocket in case something bad happens. This is really about learning this stuff ahead of time because you don't have time during the crisis to make a plan. I think 
you know, this is why the military trains so much. You need to fall back on preparation and muscle memory. And in crises, we don't really have the mental capacity to think clearly. So a lot of what it seems like you're trying to do here is say, look, you need to start thinking about this before this stuff happens, because during is not the time to start thinking, what am I going to do if bad things happen? Right. It's uh, it, it really points out the two variables that we all can control regardless of the crisis, and that is preparation and response. So the book lays out everything you need to do to be prepared, but at the same time, it gives you a planned response. Now, situation is always going to dictate, so the book is not going to be specific to any anyone's like you know environment you know at that time of the crisis, but it sure is going to give you you know that that mental plan that you can activate when it happens. Um, and yeah, it's not something you want to refer to in the middle of a crisis because time is not on your side, stress is high. Uh, that's not the time to be making decisions. You yeah. want to make all you make tell, all those decisions now. Yeah. Tell, you don't need to tell the 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 active shooter, hold on, you need to turn to page thirty five of the book to find out what's going on. No, no, but you can hold two of those books up with some ceramic tiles in between and it will stop most handgun rounds so that'd probably be better just hold the book up as a shield by you know referring to a page in it <laughs> so if, if you buy the, the both books the 100 deadly skills first book and then this one you can use them together to act as a handgun uh bulletproof vest movement watches spelled mvmt but pronounced movement was founded on the belief that style shouldn't break the bank the watchmaker's goal is to change the way consumers think about fashion by offering high-quality minimalist products at revolutionary prices. With over 500,000 watches sold to customers in over 160 countries around the world, Movement Watches has solidified itself as the world's fastest-growing watch company. Now, at this point, you might have already checked out their website or even joined the movement and bought yourself an awesome new watch, but it's that time again, the time when you can't watch TV for five minutes without being constantly reminded the holiday shopping season is here. Holiday shopping can be horrible, but thanks to movement watches, all that gift-giving anxiety can disappear with the press of a button. These watches make the perfect purchase for about anyone in your life, guy or girl. And remember, they start at only $95. So let's finish your holiday shopping and get a movement watch for someone on your list. With movement, you can skip the crowds and stand in crazy lines at the mall and find a gift they'll love at prices that beat the department stores. Classic design, quality construction, and stylized minimalism. And again, over 500,000 watches sold in over 160 countries. So you get 15% off today with free shipping and free returns by going to movementwatches.com slash spycast. That's mvmtwatches.com slash spycast. The watch from Movement I have has a really clean design. It's beautiful but not gaudy, and it's a true eye-catcher. So now is the time to step up your watch game. Go to movementwatches.com slash spycast. That's movementwatches.com slash spycast. Join the movement. One thing I really like, the first skill you throw out there, the whole idea of becoming crisis-proof was something that really uh, worked for me. Was a lot of this is about understanding your environment, about situational awareness. And I, I hearken back, this summer I went to Italy, uh, and, and it was so easy to spot the Americans uh, walking through the streets of Venice. You didn't even have to hear them talk. You could see an American coming from a mile away because it's just it's the opposite of what you say here. You say to be to fit in, to become invisible, to assimilate to a cultural understanding, because that's how you don't become a target. It seems like we've forgotten how to do this. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, lack of education. We kind of live in our own little, you know, three foot bubbles and, um, tend to not care about anybody else or their culture at any given time. And we just worry about ourselves, but, um, yeah, it's crisis proof really is one. It's a, it's a mental thing. You, you know, you need to be more preemptive and more proactive in thought. Um, it doesn't mean you need to be paranoid or, you know, label yourself a prepper or put foil on your head. It's just more about taking the time out of the day every now and then to just pay attention to your environment. You know, we, I always compare like when we cross the street, you know, we cross the street, we look both ways and, you know, you just have to implement kind of that crossing the street mentality into different parts of your day where you're looking around you're paying attention to what's going on and you're taking it in. Look for those clues and those cues. You know, I don't know how many times people that have been in a crisis will after the fact go, you know, I saw that or I thought that was bad or I, but they didn't do anything about it at that time, you know? So it is a little mental and the, you know, of course, talking about crisis proof, the skill that lays that mental aspect down, situational awareness, personal awareness, how you project yourself, your demeanor, you know, cultural awareness, knowing the do's and don'ts when you're roaming the planet. Um, but then there's the physical attributions, you know, it's, Hey, what you wear, right? Closed toed shoes, you know, wear shoes you can run or fight in. And you know, what's funny is in the middle of any natural disaster, your shoes become the most important thing that you have protecting your feet and being mobile becomes, you know, paramount and, you know, pants versus shorts when you have the option, um, you know, for women, if your hair is down or in a ponytail, put it in a bun, you know, hair down or a ponytail becomes a handle for a bad guy to control your body with. Um, if you wear lanyards to work with badges or IDs on it, you know, make sure it's a breakaway lanyard. Um, they make them out there. They didn't make them because bad guys can grab the lanyard and jerk you around. They made them breakaway so that if it accidentally dangles in the, uh, the paper shredder, you don't get choked out. But, um, you know, and, and then, you know, the clothes we choose to wear, make sure they're not iconic. You don't need a big Nike symbol across your chest or, you know, it's all about kind of being the great person, blending in so that you reduce your, your, you know, your threat vulnerabilities. Um, and then there's some hardware, right? I mean, we, we all carry purses and man bags. Beefing, beefing those up can help, you know, adding carabiners to the connection point between your your straps to the actual bag itself. Um, and then you've got yourself a makeshift seatbelt, you know, for different environments or different situations, maybe public transportation. We've had all these runaway trains lately. Um, you know, you just had the one in Jersey, you had last year in Philly. Um, you know, they've all had a death, if not more, involved these are unfortunate, but it's once again, it's not the speed that kills you. It's the sudden stop. Right. <laughs> um, you know, so you can start wearing things that really it does. It's not, you still get to, you can still dress nice, look good. Cause you know, our egos are very important to us these days, but you can still have some tools on you that can always be there only if you need them. And it's better to have them than not. Yeah, and I think that's the thing about this book is that you're not advocating people build bunkers in their backyards. You're really giving some very basic day-to-day things that can make life a lot a lot safer and, and, and you can survive a potential problem a lot easier. I mean, I'm thinking about Washington, D.C. We're, we're a target-rich environment, not just because of the government here, but because everybody has a lanyard. 
And everybody has their head in their cell phone all the time. They're looking at emails or walking across the street, literally staring straight down at their phones. And that, you know, that's not the most uh, effective way to, to be uh, situationally aware, certainly of, of an environment that could potentially go bad at any point. Yeah, you're correct. It's it's all about just, you know, the little things. You can you can hide a razor blade here, you can have a, you know, um, you know, whether it's a fixed blade or folding knife somewhere, you know, flashlight whistles, so all these basic things that you can have really do become <laughs> lifesavers uh, if you find yourself in a bad situation and it really they're it's cost effective. You can put them everywhere. And just knowing that you have them will hopefully give you a certain kind of confidence when you're walking down the street where a bad guy goes, you know what, mm, I'm not going to mess with that person. I'll mess with someone else. So even even if we ignore worrying about bad guys, so a lot of listeners out there are going to be like, I'm not going to run into a bad guy anytime soon. Or I'm here in Washington. I can't really carry a knife around going in out of the Capitol building. To me, one of the greatest sections in this book is the navigation section. We've already brought that up. You already talked about the fact we become so reliant on GPS I think back to, I went through basic training in the 90s, so I'm thinking back to all the land nav courses I did in basic training, which most people these days, again, this is where I'm going to get crotchety, kids today just are so reliant on electronic means for navigation uh, that it's pretty extraordinary, and your book provides a lot of great clues in the environment if you know where to look. Exactly. You know, and it's, you know, the big four really, it's, you can look at the natural environment when we're talking about the things that grow, right? And you look at them, nothing is, nothing is symmetrical. Um, and, and that's for a reason, maybe because of the sun, the wind, the weather, but all that is clues on, you know, which direction to go. Um, then you have, of course, um, celestial, you know, now this is very difficult, but it was something everybody knew at one time. Um, and celestial navigation was used to get across oceans. Um, but there are some, there's the big three, whether you're in the Northern hemisphere on the equator down South, you know, that just the, the average traveler should know just so they always have their bearings. Um, and then of course, you know, magnetic, um, you know, I show how to kind of make an improvised compass, but, you know, knowing the difference. I mean, I think, you know, some people have no clue on how a compass actually works. So I make sure that's somewhat explained. <laughs> it's kind of step one in many ways. Yeah. yeah, it is. And it's important to know these things that, you know, just in case, you know, once again, your batteries die and you know, all that technology relying on you, um, all that technology relying on fails. Um, and then, you know, Overall, you, you just need to, once again, know the basics so that uh, when, when certain things don't go your way or, you know, the things around you fail, you'll at least be able to keep on moving forward um, no matter where you are on the globe. Well, some people may not think this is an issue, but even the Navy now, the Naval Academy is looking at going back to celestial navigation as a backup in case GPS goes out or in case... I mean, the first shots in any next war are probably going to take out satellites. They're going to be anti-satellite or they're going to be cyber attacks. And so we're going to need to kind of have an idea about how to do it the old-fashioned way. I think so. Yeah, I think so. It's, um, I don't think we would ever, you know, the whole world come to an end and, you know, zombies roaming the planet or anything like that. I'm far from that kind of stuff. But I think there'll be pockets of issues that, 
you know, will affect certain people that will wish they knew this type of basic information. Well, let's, let's talk about cyber, because there's a section in this book that does focus on cyber threats, which you, you, you'd have to be living in a cave to not know how more prevalent these will become. And really, they can go after anyone. I think there's a misconception that, well, I don't run a big business or I'm not have secret emails that deal with some kind of political situation, so I'm not going to be targeted for cyber. But things like ransomware, which can target just about anybody, is trending way up. And even virtual kidnapping. Can you talk a little bit about these dangers? Yeah, so both of them have been on the rise. You know, ransomware was more of a corporate thing for a while. Now it's starting to affect a lot of people. It doesn't matter who you are. Anybody who's got a laptop can be affected by it. Um, and it really goes back to complacency. You know, complacency really is your 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 number one culprit um, with most of this stuff. It's it's hey, you clicked on something that you shouldn't have clicked on, or you know, it's the it's the contracted guard that wasn't paying attention. You know, so it's complacency ends up being you know the biggest issue. But ransomware specifically, when you uh, click on something, it puts malware onto your computer that uh, locks everything up. The, the really good stuff will actually encrypt all of your files to where you can't even open anything. And usually there'll be a set of directions that pop up shortly after that that tell you uh, it could be um, click on this, pay, and you know we'll the, you basically pay a nominal fee and we'll release your, we'll decrypt all of your files and you can have them back. Um, or sometimes it's been a set of directions like, okay, go to an ATM machine, pull out X dollars, take it to Western Union, send it to this place. Uh, it turns into kind of a, you know, cat and mouse type deal. And they have you believe that they've got you under surveillance or something. But um, anyway, it's, uh, it's becoming more and more prevalent. It's good for people to know, one, how do you, uh, how do you mitigate it all together? And so the book kind of lays out the steps that, one, Using the three-two-one rule, and this is popular in the IT world, um, in corporate world, because it's all about backing things up. So, three-two-one, it's back up to the terminal you're on. Um, make sure you have an external drive that you're backing everything up to, and make sure you're backing up to the cloud. And the beauty is, these days, you can have that all real time. You, every all three um, spots are being backed up, and it's it's not anything that takes anything out of your work day. The beauty of that is, is if the terminal gets affected with the malware, then you can literally switch to a different terminal and keep on working because you've got everything backed up real time. Um, the other aspect to this is one, one, as soon as there is, a, as soon as you are locked, as soon as you get that, um, that warning or that, hey, you need to pay us in order to unlock your files, um, disconnect from the network, Everyone disconnects. Everyone stops clicking on emails so that it doesn't become a company-wide or a family-wide issue. Um, so power down, disconnect altogether. You know, prevent this thing from affecting you any further. Um, now, if you flip over to kind of virtual kidnappings, you know, just in D.C. a couple of weeks ago, you had a mom that, uh, you know, for five hours thought her daughter had been kidnapped. And um, it, you know, made the news, and um, and this has become more and more of a more popular, sophisticated crime. But it's all a hoax, okay? The book lays out really the big differences between a real kidnapping and a short one, or I mean, a, a virtual one, should I say? Time, right? The, 
A virtual kidnapping, they want to keep you on the phone. They do not want to hang up with you. And the reason being is because if you hang up, you might actually call your loved one and see if they're okay. So a virtual one, they will keep you on the phone. A real one, one, they tend to call you from your kid's phone because they want to send the message right off the bat that they have your kid. So that's number one. Caller ID comes up, your child, then you know it's legit. Second to that, time. They stay on the phone for very minimal amounts of time because they do not want to be tracked or traced. Okay, so money. In a virtual kidnapping, they'll have you run around town doing the ATM thing and have you believe that you're being watched the whole time and then have you drop the money, mail the money, whatever. Um, and it's very little. I mean, we're talking hundreds. It may, it may breach a thousand bucks, who knows? But with a real one, they're gonna ask for a significant amount of money. We're talking as much as they can get. Um, and the, these identifiers continue on through, through, that, through that part of the book so that everyone knows the difference and knows how to mitigate this. But the biggest piece of the virtual kidnapping is social media. You know, If you're not telling everyone what you're doing real time, then it makes it even more difficult because the bad guys rely on looking at your social media. Oh, this person is going to be on a plane from New York to London for five hours. That's five hours. I can call this person's grandmother and because the grandmother may not know that the granddaughter is going to London, call the grandmother and have her believe I've got your, I've got your child. I've got your grandchild. Um, if you hang up, I will kill her. I need you to go and get me X amount of dollars. And then as you know, the whole hoax begins. So these are the, uh, main differences and some of the highlights to the skills in the book so that you can mitigate it all together. So at the very least, the book provides the reader with some wonderful mental exercises to think through how you would react to face with some extreme circumstances, like fending off a pirate attack and combat clearing your home. Now, many of us have thought this through, or maybe it's just me about how I would combat clear my house uh, but there are things that you, you say, you know, this will never happen to me, but you may be in a position where you need to create a fire with a cell phone or survive a tsunami. I would say survive a hurricane, but there's very little in here about that. As a Miami, I'm a little annoyed, but that's okay. Um, but these are things that, again, just thinking through them can potentially be helpful for dealing with less extreme circumstances. Yeah, I mean that is really the goal, you know. Especially with the natural disasters, I do. Uh, I try to make it interesting the fact that it's a comparison between, um, you know, like you said, hurricanes, hurricane and tornado, right? One, you have very little time to prepare for a hurricane. On the other hand, you got lots of time usually because we have technology out there that tells us it's coming. Um, you know, with a tsunami, completely different where you have you know, a, a tidal wave basically that if you look at Indonesia, it would have been, you know, several years ago where 248,000 people were killed by one wave. And then you had the aftermath of disease and, and everything else that comes with it. So, you know, knowing what to do, knowing what the signs and symptoms of these different natural disasters are, can save a life easily. I mean, if people would have known, and you know, if they're standing on the beach in Indonesia and saw that beach recede by 500 to 1,000 feet, I mean, that's the sign that something bad is coming. Um, 
but no one knew. So no one took high ground. No one got two miles inland. No one did anything to really prepare themselves. So you had, you know, hundreds of thousands of people die. Right. So uh, let me end with this because I, I think that there are some pretty great information here about a lot of things that people should take a look at. But some of the information about home security, and again, in Washington, we can't line up guns around our house. It's just not something we can do. But it was interesting to see some of these statistics about home invasion. I used to think that during the day it was fine. No one's going to break into the house at the time. But actually, during the day is the most common time for a home invasion and through the front door. Yeah, yeah. The bad guys know that they want to use the door that you use all the time. Um, it also has the greatest probability of accidentally being left unlocked, too. Um, but bigger than that, I, I basically took the, the fortify your home section and took it from my angle as a predator. And so the way that I look at a target, I look for vulnerabilities and then how to exploit those vulnerabilities. I put the reciprocal in the book. So, you know, one, there was plenty of times we'd go hit a target and target knew we were coming because the neighborhood all communicates with one another. Uh, yeah, so that's why I put in there. It takes a village, you know, start talking to your neighbor, neighbors, communicate with one another, talk about this kind of stuff. Hey, if you see something strange in my driveway because I'm going to be out of town, let me know or just call the cops all together. I mean, so you want to detect it early, you know. Second, you know, we always rely on locks and alarms. It's like, well, if the bad guy has made it all the way to your door to test your locks and test your alarm, <laughs> Well, then you're already kind of in a bad place. You, you want to keep them away. You want to keep them off your property. So there's things you can do. Bad guys, if you look at interviews with career criminals, they don't want to hit a home that has a bunch of toys in the front yard. Kids are unpredictable. They don't want to deal with that. Um, they don't want to deal with, uh, you know, a single woman's home that has a, a size of, you know, a pair of size 12 sneakers sitting out by the front door. That means, oh, there's a guy there maybe. Um, they don't want to deal with a home that's well lit up. You know, if it's lit up like a Christmas tree, then, you know, they, they'll know that, okay, they'll feel vulnerable as soon as they get into that, that, that bubble of illumination right. and they don't want to be seen. Um, you know, so, I mean, there's a lot of skills I put in there that don't break the bank, but keep the bad guys away. And, that, and that's why I wanted to wrap up with this question, because you're really taking your training as the person whose job it was to find ways into houses and showing people how to stop you from coming in in the future. Right. To a certain degree, with exception to like, you know, my million dollar little gadgets. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the U.S. government had a bigger budget than most career criminals do, but yeah, <laughs> do what we can to prevent it. We'd like to thank Movement Watches for their continued support of SpyCast. Remember, you can get 15% off today by going to movementwatches.com slash spycast. That's mvmtwatches.com slash spycast. So Clint Emerson is the author of two books, 100 Deadly Skills, A SEAL Operative's Guide to Eluding Pursuers, Evading Capture, and Surviving Any Dangerous Situation, and now its sequel, 100 Deadly Skills, Survival Edition, The SEAL Operative's Guide to Surviving in the Wild and Being Prepared for Any Disaster. Clint, coming from Texas, thank you for taking the time. Obviously, you've got some weather issues going on there. Yeah. We could hear the thunder behind you, but we do appreciate you taking the time to talk to us here on SpyCast. Hey, thanks for having me again, Vince, and you guys uh, keep up the good work. Absolutely, thanks. 
Thank you for joining us on SpyCast. Every Tuesday, we'll give you the most interesting conversations with some of the most intriguing people in the world of intelligence. If you'd like to send us a comment or suggestion, you can email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Or tweet us at intlspycast. That's I-N-T-L-S-P-Y-C-A-S-T. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution. To help support future educational programming, please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. Thank you, and we'll see you next week. Hey all, Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to share your feedback now.